Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. For our episode this week, Kellen and I got to interview Richard Heimberg. As an introduction for Richard, I'm going to read his bio. He's a senior fellow of Post Carbon Institute and author of 14 books on energy and the environment, including Power, Limits, and Prospects for Human Survival, which we're going to talk about in this interview, The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality, and with David Fridley, Our Renewable Future. He's won an award for excellence in energy education and has been published in Nature, Wall Street Journal, and Literary Review. Heimberg's work is cited as one of the inspirations for the International Transition Towns Movement, which seeks to build community resilience ahead of climate change. He and his wife, Janet Barocco, live in an energy-efficient permaculture home in Santa Rosa, California. All right, Richard Heimberg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. One of the reasons I was most excited for this interview was because I had the chance to read your book, Power. And we're going to get into this book uh, here in just a little bit. I have a few questions I want to ask first. Um, but the first thing I just wanted to mention was the book is phenomenally written. Um, hmm. I wanted to kind of give this compliment because it, it actually touched me in a way that a lot of other materials about Collapse haven't. Um, it organized my thoughts or made concrete the idea of Collapse in my mind. So just congratulations on a book really well written. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's really gratifying to hear that because uh, you know the book hasn't gotten like lots of reviews and so on. So it's 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 really nice to hear when it's touched someone. Yeah, it it was a big deal for me, and I'll probably end up going back and reading it another time or two. Um, and like I said, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, first, I just want to ask. So 
for you, what is it that brought collapse awareness into your life? At what point in life did this click for you? Uh, you know, it's been a long process and it started when I was uh, 21 years old and I read a book called The Limits to Growth. And uh, for those who are not familiar with the book, it was written almost exactly 50 years ago. And it was written by a team of scientists at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. These were systems scientists, and uh, they were using this new gizmo called a computer <laughs> to try to model scenarios of the future, looking at data on things like resources, pollution, population, industrial production, and, and food, and to see how these, these trends in these areas might influence each other over time. So they didn't do just one scenario. They did a dozen scenarios, you know, jiggling with the data and government policies and all the, all the inputs they could reasonably do, you know, within the boundaries of the experiment. And their, their standard run uh, scenario where, you know, it was basically business as usual. What if current trends continue well, then, uh, that standard run scenario showed a peak and decline in world industrial output, population, and food. Sometime in the middle of the 21st century, probably the, sometime in the first half of the 21st century, roughly right about now. So they did not want to see that outcome. They thought, well, you know, what can we do to avert this kind of, of scenario? So they imagined, well, what if we program into the, the scenario twice as much natural resources or government policies to limit population growth or government policies to reduce pollution and so on? And so all of the subsequent scenarios were generated that way. And uh, most of them, except for the ones with really the most government intervention to slow population growth and increase the efficiency of the use of materials and energy and assuming, you know, endless resources. Most of those other scenarios still showed some kind of peak and decline during the 21st century. In some of them, it was put off later until around the middle of the century or a little bit after, but it was always, you know, really, really tough going. So I read this again when I was 21 years old. So I've, I've had this knowledge in the back of my mind that most likely, you know, we were going to be hitting some limits in the 21st century. And so basically, my whole adult life has been colored by that awareness. And so all the things I've investigated, whether it's uh, economics or uh, environmental issues, uh, resource limits, pollution, all of it's been within, within that framework. And I have to say, there haven't been that many surprises. It's like, you know, we're, we're chugging along this course. We're hewing pretty close, actually, to the standard run scenario. And, you know, since 1972, uh, world leaders have essentially ignored the whole thing. There were some economists back along the way who said, well, the idea that there are limits to growth, we can't let that, you know, out of the bag. We can't have the general public believing that or even talking about it. So they just stomped on it. And, you know, if you look at their, their critiques of the book, they're just intellectually dishonest in every possible way. 
But nevertheless, you know, that was persuasive to policymakers because that's what policymakers wanted to hear. The last thing they wanted to hear was that there are limits to growth and that policymakers, in order to avert some kind of catastrophe, a collapse in the 21st century, would actually have to do something, would actually have to limit uh, economic expansion and material throughput and energy usage and so on. That would be really hard. So rather than having to do something that was really, really hard politically and, and practically, they just ignored the whole thing. And here we are, you know, it's, uh, it's the early 21st century. If the lights were flashing yellow in the 1970s, they're flashing red now in all of these categories. Uh, most system scientists, environmental scientists, and even social scientists are now you know, willing to consider the, the strong likelihood of industrial uh, collapse, uh, collapse in food supply and, and all the rest occurring this century, especially with climate change now. We can talk more about how that's entered the picture. But, you know, it's no longer a big, a big surprise, but um, it shouldn't be a surprise as to how we got here because we had plenty of warning and we ignored it. Yeah, that book, Limits to Growth, I know that was pretty groundbreaking and got a lot of attention at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's been foundational since then. Uh, but I know a lot of people out there read the book and didn't think much more about it. You've written several books yourself and have have become a thought leader in this space. What do you think it is about you or about that message that really connected with you? Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to get into the psychology of it. I do not have a background in uh, environmental science or, you know, much of anything useful. I'm, <laughs> I was trained as an artist and a musician. So, you know, it would be really, e- it would have been really easy for me just to ignore all this stuff and spend my life, you know, either as a painter or a violinist or, or you know, whatever. Uh, and I've always kept those things as kind of side hobbies. But for me, it, it was just a, a, a mind worm. You know, once it got in there, it was like, you know, how come everybody around me isn't talking about this? How can they be living in a world where we're constantly every year using more oil and copper and iron and so on than we did last year and not think about the simple arithmetic of compound exponential growth? You know, I mean, you can't grow anything forever within a finite system. You can't grow any material quantity or process within a finite system for very long, or you get, you reach limits and the whole thing breaks down. I mean, it, it's, it's so blindingly obvious. And yet here, you know, you pick up a newspaper and there's, there, there's never any mention of resource depletion or anything like that. They'll talk about climate change these days, but that's really just within the last 10 years. And even then it's all about, well, we, we just have to build more solar panels and everything will be fine. Like I say, it's maddening. And I, I couldn't get that out of my head. And so I just had to, I had to think these through for myself, these things through for myself and, and do some research and try to make sense of it all. And that's, that's why I wrote the books. Based on the reception that Limits to Growth got in 1972, compared to kind of where we seem to be at today, do you feel like it would be received differently today if it had been written now? Or do you feel like, have, have we made progress or are we in the same place or maybe even worse? I think it would not be received as well today 
as it was in 1972. That's that sounds crazy to say, but you know, um, in 1972, Limits to Growth was huge. It's the best-selling environmental book of all time. I think it sold something like 12 million copies. It really was discussed widely. And if there hadn't been this concerted effort by a bunch of really prominent economists to, to stomp all over it, you know, it, it probably would have, have gotten even more uh, discussion and consideration. But today, I don't think it would even take that to, to silence it. I don't think it would sell 12 million copies for one thing, because people just have their, their people have so many interests now. You know, you, you can believe anything you want, anything you want to believe. You can go on the Internet and find plenty of information to support that point of view, however crazy it is. So, you know, who's going to who's going to want to, you know, uh, dive into information that's so gloomy that, you know, possibility that this century we could we could hit resource limits and population limits and food limits and everything might fall apart there. Yes, there would be a dedicated small niche group like yourselves and like like myself who would be compelled by this argument and and evidence and so on, and would find it, you know, absolutely riveting, but we would be in the very small minority and most other people would be reading about pop stars and sports and, and politics. And, and to them that those would be the most important things in the world. Well, as you've talked about, you know, in the context of limits to growth, you've already mentioned uh, resource depletion, peak resources and climate change. Uh, population growth, all these things that are kind of combining into this massive threat that we have. What concerns you the most as you look to these next couple of decades? Oh boy, that's that's a tough one. You know, because there, um, it's it's always a matter. Of, well, what's going to be the trigger? Because there there are all of these crises that are kind of waiting in the wings to con- converge. And you did a great job just now of naming them. Um, population growth is a really slow moving, uh, you know, process. And so it's not like suddenly next week, we're all going to wake up and realize that the world is overpopulated. So that's, that's not a, that's not a a trigger point. Uh, For a long time, I thought that uh, resource depletion, particularly with fossil fuels might be a, you know, a short-term driver and it turned out that uh, world conventional oil production did hit uh, some limits back in 2005, but we found a bunch of unconventional oil uh, in places that geologists had pretty much given up on and applying new technology enabled the industry to, to eke out a few million more barrels from you know, uh, fracking and horizontal drilling, mostly here in the US. So that that problem was more or less averted over the short term. Uh, meanwhile, climate change has really jumped into the, the lead position in terms of, of collapse uh, factors in most people's minds. And there is a very good reason for that. I mean, we are seeing really uh, horrific impending outcomes happening with uh, the melting of glaciers, the 
uh, polar ice caps, Antarctica, Greenland, uh, likelihood of much more extreme weather, rising sea levels, drowning coastal cities. All of this could be happening, you know, by mid-century. But then we also have human systems that are, you know, based in these natural systems, based in resources and stable climate and so on, but have their own uh, instability baked into them, like the global financial system. And the financial system assumes perpetual growth. So there's an enormous debt bubble that we've, that we've blown collectively, globally, since about 1980. An enormous amount of debt based on the assumption that the economy will continue growing for decades and decades more. And if that assumption is you know, problematic, then suddenly all bets are off. All of this debt can be called in and there's there's nothing there behind it. It's like, you know, that moment in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy pulls back the curtain and uh, the wizard is shown to be this, this old guy who's just pulling a bunch of levers but doesn't have any real power. Well, it's kind of the same. That almost happened in 2008 and central banks were able to uh, you know, close ranks and uh, lower interest rates, uh, pump a, you know, trillions of dollars into the financial system to keep it from collapsing. But would that work again? And there, there's a good argument to be made that it might not work next time. And will there be a next time? Absolutely. There's no question about that. Uh, it, it's just a question of when. And then there's, there's uh, the, the geopolitical card, and we're seeing that playing out right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Could this lead to a general breakdown of the whole global system of, of trade and, and peace? I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's a question a lot of people are asking right now. And I think there's a, a good argument to be made that we've entered a new era a new economic and political and energy era as a result of both the Russian invasion and also the response of the West, which was, of course, to sanction um, Russia and Russian companies, pull all of their experts out of the Russian oil industry, uh, boycott Russian goods and so on. This is going to have enormous uh, blowback in economic blowback on uh, Western countries and the rest of the world, and we're already seeing rising energy prices, rising food prices. Uh, what happens when food prices go up? That creates more uh, political instability. So where all this is headed, I don't know. Nobody knows, but it's it's definitely a danger point. So you your question was, you know, what's what's going to trip the the process over into a, a situation that everybody will kind of recognize as being collapsed? Again, nobody knows, but there sure are a lot of viable candidates out there, and it seems there are more of them all the time. I'm curious what your opinion is, and after this question, we'll jump into into your book, and I think it it might tie in a little bit. But when it comes to the financial system and the future of the financial system, you just mentioned that. It's unsustainable. And we almost saw a complete breakage in 2008. We recovered. If you can call it a recovery, we basically just kept doing what we were doing before, but faster and and, um, (laughs) more extreme. All of that debt, all of that has to come due at some point. Um, In your book, Power, you talk about the idea of uh, in the past, how there were debt jubilees um, Mm. and 
and I, and I've wondered, and I just wonder your opinion on this, the future of debt and our financial system, it's got to reset or, or crash at some point. And I'm curious if you feel that there's any place for a Jubilee or some type of a reset that could be positive, um, or if all that's in the cards right now is, is something that would result in collapse. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you're, if you look for things that the folks in charge, the global elites could do to reduce risk and improve the prospects of survivors, there are lots of things they could do. But, and, and here we, we're really getting into the subject matter of the book. All of them involve giving up some advantages, giving up some power like a, a, a global debt jubilee, well, who would that impact the most? Well, it would impact mostly the, the people who hold all of those poker chips, you know, the, the debt. Uh, if a lot of that debt were to be systematically canceled, then, you know, uh, billionaires would turn into millionaires. And that may not shame. sound, that, that doesn't <laughs> sound like that bad a thing, you know? I mean, if you still got them, a million bucks, what's the, what's the problem? But for people in that position, in their mindset, that's just inconceivable. It's the last thing in the world they want to do. They would rather risk the destruction of the whole system than personally have to step up and give up a substantial part of their, their personal power and their personal fortune. And that's the tragedy of the whole thing. So with that uh, sort of leading into this idea of power. The book is essentially about the process of collapse, but from a perspective or a, a framework, sort of the lens of power and power dynamics. What took you down the path to viewing all of this through power? Well, um, for one thing, I've learned over the years and particularly about the last 25 years or so, maybe 30 years, that energy is really at the heart of everything. If you want to understand an ecosystem, if you want to understand a society, if you want to understand an organism, uh, follow the energy. Um, money, you know, is important in human society, but money is just a is just a marker, really, for energy. And power, in its most basic form, if you if if you ask a physicist what is power, well, it's the rate of energy transfer. But as we just, as I just said, you know, energy is what enables everything to happen. So it's, it's also possible to, to talk about power as kind of the, the essence of what makes life work, what makes the world work, what makes the economy work. And when you frame it that way, it adds a whole other dimension, because in English, the word power is used in several different senses. This is less true in other languages. Uh, in French and German, for example, there are different words for social power versus uh, the power of energy and, and so on. Well, be that as it may, it's, it may create problems for translations of the book. I don't know. Yeah. But, but it, for, for the purposes of, of English readers, it, it really opens up a whole panoply of new ways of thinking because social power is really about how we can use other people's energy. You know, if power is the ability to do something, we talk about the power of flight or the power of speech or something like that. 
uh, when we do something, we're using energy to accomplish a goal. But with social power, you're actually through language, through communication, through um, technology, we're, we're influencing other people. We're able to use other people's energy to do things. And that's not unique in the biological world, but certainly we human beings have become champions at social power. And so what I wanted to do in the book really was answer or at least address <laughs> uh, three questions. First, you know, how have we human beings become so powerful as to bring the planet to the brink of ecological catastrophe? Second, how have we learned, how have we come to oppress one another in so many ways and such, I mean, if you look at other social species, they can get nasty toward each other sometimes. I mean, we have backyard chickens, um, my wife and I, and chickens are very social animals and they have a pecking order and it's, you know, they're, they can be kind of nasty to one another sometimes. But if you look at human beings, I mean, the, the, the nastiness of chickens to each other is nothing compared to what people do to each other. I mean, look at what's going on in, in Ukraine right now. That's just one example, but you know, you could go on and on and on through history of uh, Holocaust and every, you know, it's just, uh, so how, how, have, how have we gotten so nasty to one another? How, how have we come to control each other in such extraordinary ways? And then the third question is, is there any way of changing our relationship with power to avert what looks like it could be, you know, collapse this, this century? So those are the three big questions that the book addresses, and that's the framework in which it does so. Yeah, you mentioned that relationship to power. And, and I love that you've brought up elements of your book where you talk about power in the context of nature and biology. You talk about power uh, from the viewpoint of energy. You talk about it in the perspective of social power. And really, it paints this picture. It, it allows you to see the world through this lens that everything really is all about power. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the book that power isn't inherently bad. It is kind of how the world works, but where we face dangers are when there's an overaccumulation of power or an mm -hmm. abuse of power. On the overaccumulation side, how, how do you know when you have too much power? What, what does it look like? Uh, or what's the right amount of power to accumulate? Yeah, yeah. well, there, there are always warning signs. Um, now, yeah, as you say, power is good. I mean, if individual cells cannot work without power, bacteria can't work without energy. You know, there's, there's power at every level of the natural world. And evolution has been all about species finding new ways of gaining and exerting power over their environment, sometimes over one another, but usually over, over their environment so that they can get food and reproduce more successfully and, and so on. And the result is gorgeous. You know, nature is wonderful. And it's all a result of these complex relations of power with, with the energy ultimately coming from the sun and then getting uh, transferred in all of these myriads of ways through plants and animals all the way up to us. And at the same time, it's possible to have too much of a good thing. That's not a uniquely human problem. Uh, it's happened in nature 
um, at various points, there have been, uh, you know, all the way back with the the beginnings of uh, uh, cyanobacteria, you know, that could create oxygen. I mean, that was a catastrophe for life on Earth, you know, three billion years ago, whenever it was, because it was it it was a buildup of power in a certain way that was unprecedented that resulted in dramatic change. So ecosystems go through this all the time. You know, there are power balances. And as a result of whatever, you know, uh, weather or <laughs> change in climate or uh, the, the arrival of a new species or the evolution of a new species or, or whatever, things, things get out of balance and then they, they adjust. It's a process of what ecologists call succession. Okay, well, this has happened with human beings too. You know, human societies through time, time have have seen uh, more and more accumulation of power, and I trace that in the book all the way up from the the evolution of humans several hundred thousand years ago through the evolution of the first state societies based on grain production, the beginnings of specialization with full-time division of labor, full-time soldiers and accountants and kings and so on. All of this was greater and greater accumulation of power. But once we got to that stage of the, the early state societies where some people had a lot more power than others. And it was, you know, it was a lifelong thing. Once you got to be king, you could tell anybody else what to do. That's a lot of social power. Well, that, that it also created a lot of instability. And these early state societies were very fragile and, and very vulnerable, and they collapsed on a regular basis. And it was over periods, a long period of time that state societies began to find ways to shore themselves up so that they were a little bit less vulnerable. But it's, it's still true today. You know, and you look back through history and civilizations have collapsed quite regularly. It's not an unusual thing. It's, it's almost baked into uh, the existence of civilizations. Same thing with, with uh, economic power. You know, we've used money to create uh, social power, to use social power. And the buildup of money in a, in a financial system is also the buildup of debt. Debt and money are joined at the hip. They always have been from the very beginning. One person's debt is another person's money and, and, and vice versa. And when the power of wealth builds up to a certain point, that always entails the, the systematic impoverishment of other people. And you can only do that up to a point and people get either upset and you have a revolution or they just get so impoverished that they can't, you know, they can't afford to keep on and the whole thing crashes down. So these are all ways in which over empowerment creates its own problems that, that it, it either succumbs, either you solve those problems or the system succumbs to them. And in the modern world, as a result of fossil fuels, we have created so much power that we have lost sight of the limiting factors that stand in our way and that could bring collapse in our, our near-term future. We've gotten so good at aggregating power, in other words, that we just don't think anything can, can limit us. We have this ideology that we've developed in the modern world that there are no limits. And you know, you read politicians like Ronald Reagan or economists 
And they're, th this is their language. They're telling us that we can grow forever, that there's nothing standing in our way, not limitations of natural resources or the environment or anything. We can have, all, we can have unlimited population growth on a finite planet and it, wouldn't, it won't be a problem. It's absolutely crazy. And it's that ideology that I think more than anything else is setting us up for a really big fall. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that idea of politicians and sort of the platforms that they run on. You talk about this in your book, and we've talked about it formally in the podcast as well, about how you don't see politicians out there running on a platform of degrowth. There's not a lot of success for those types of politicians in our current system. And, and we'll, we've got a few questions that I think we're going to ask you around degrowth here in a little bit. But before that, your answer um, brought up some other questions for me. So one is that your book talks a lot about how the change from a more um, horizontal power to vertical power, specifically around the time of the agricultural revolution, that was, that was a marked shift in the way that our societies worked and it allowed for more complexity. Um, do you feel like society could have ever gotten to the size or technological advancement that it did today if we had stayed with a more horizontal power or was vertical power necessary? You know, I think it's unlikely. Um, there's there's a new book out uh, called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrau. And they essentially, they're, they're not, you know, really directly making the argument, but essentially they're making the argument that, you know, humans always have a choice as to whether to have vertical or, or horizontal power. And uh, even in modern industrial societies, we could have a much more horizontal power. And that's certainly true up to a point. I mean, among modern industrial societies, some are democracies, some are autocracies. Some corporations are cooperatives and others are, you know, totally authoritarian, top down. So, yeah, there, there are always uh, choices to be made and, and there's always a, a, a range of possibilities. But, you know, looking back, it's hard to see that the sequence of events that took place was anything other than inevitable. <laughs> yeah. I kind of hate to say that, but, you know, once, uh, once the opportunity for the aggregation of that much power was in place, uh, how, could, how could people step back from that? It's like fossil fuels, you know, once we got to the point where we had metallurgy and gears and certain technologies, you know, in place where we could put fossil fuels to work and we had privatization of resources, we had the basis of capitalism, then the next step of actually digging up the fossil fuels and burning them and, and inventing all kinds of ways to use them, that was, that was going to happen regardless of whether it was a communist society or a capitalist society or, or whatever. It was, it was inevitable. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. And some of it speaks to human nature. I found mm -hmm. it interesting in your book, you talked about how there are natural guardrails in place in, in nature and in our societal systems that keep individuals or groups from accumulating too much power. Um, and that one of those kind of defenses that we have is just compassion and empathy. And, and that in order for human beings to 
not over accumulate or abuse power. They need to care more about other people. And yet at the same time, in your book, you, you talk about ways that we could try to mitigate or solve some of these problems. Uh, My perspective, maybe I'm just reading between the lines here, but you don't seem too hopeful that we will. And so when it comes to human nature and, and, ways that we can help people lean into that compassion and empathy do you see a path to do that and if so what would that look like right well you know one of the very big takeaways of the book and i spend a couple of chapters you know making this argument very systematically is that inherently we are capable of power self-limitation it's not that human nature is you know dead set against any any self-limitation at all. And as long as soon as we have the, the, the prospect of overpowering nature and each other, then the rest is, is a foregone conclusion. Uh, self-limitation exists all throughout nature, uh, from homeostasis in cells to uh, predator-prey relationships in ecosystems and in human societies. You know, uh, people have been uh, organizing to deal with bullies since we were hunter gatherers and even in, in modern state societies, you know, we, um, we have regulations, environmental regulations, uh, labor regulations, product safety regulations. All of these are ways of limiting power to one degree or another in one way or another so that we don't go off the rails. So it's possible to do it. But once, you know, once again, it's like, we've been so successful that we've, the, the amount of power self-regulation that would be required right now in order for us to avert collapse may be more than we're really up to. Another factor that I talk about in the book is, is the fact that we, once you get to a vertical social power where some, a few people can tell a lot of other people what to do, it creates a dynamic that's, that's inherently problematic because um, there's, there's been a lot of psychological research in the last, even the last decade on what happens to people when they have a lot of social power, whatever, whether they're really wealthy or famous or they're politicians or, or whatever. When people have a lot of social power, it changes them. They tend to be less risk averse. They tend to have less empathy they find it more difficult to contemplate things like climate change or economic inequality. And so the people that we put in charge, the people who are going to have to make the decisions about climate change and and economic inequality and so on, are actually the very worst people that we could choose to make those decisions. So that, that in and of itself makes it hard, really problematic to to, to solve these problems. They're, they're easier to address on, you know, on the small scale at the local level. I mean, if you, if you get a group of friends together, I, I know this from personal experience, you know, starting an intentional community where we're going to, you know, build houses together and, and grow organic food. And, you know, that can create a lot of problems too. And people can have fallings out. And, and if, if some people are, are more, you know, kind of power hungry than others, it shows up sooner or later and, and, and so on. Nevertheless, on a small scale, it's easier to see, it's easier to deal with, and things don't get 
all that out of hand. You know, it's when you get to really huge state societies of hundreds of millions of people, tens and hundreds of millions of people, where everything is at stake and you're, you're running roughshod over the natural world and the people who have the most power just, you know, have uh, tens of billions of dollars individually at their disposal and control over whole nations and system, then it's really, really hard to, to do what, what's actually necessary in order to put on the brakes and keep from going over that cliff. So at the end of the book, you start to talk about what, what it would look like to power down, basically, mm-hmm. to get back within our natural limits, to leave this overshoot that we're in. I would like somebody to tell me that I'm wrong, and I hope, <laughs> I hope that you tell me that I'm wrong here, but I have always felt like an intentional degrowth is, mm-hmm. in a way, still collapse. You know, I've said collapse is inevitable. We either collapse because it's forced on us or we collapse because we choose to. One collapse would be much better than the other. But do you feel that the size that we're at right now, the complexity, the the globalization and everything, is there a way to degrow, even if everybody agreed to it, that did not involve a collapse? Um, I think actually in your question, you, you frame things very well. Um, there, there is still a way to degrow that would uh, avert a lot of human suffering and a lot of destruction of the natural world. But at this point, it would involve such radical actions on the part of leaders that it would create an enormous amount of social blowback against them and, and social instability that's not a pretty picture. It would be really, really not only difficult, but also disruptive. Uh, And a lot of people would create conspiracy theories about how the elites are doing this for their own nefarious purposes and how they're being robbed of of their birthright. And you can imagine how, how upset people would become if they were asked to undertake a program of what would essentially mean voluntary poverty. You know, it would really mean people in wealthy countries like the United States living a lot more like how people in some place like Costa Rica are already living, which is, you know, people are surviving in Costa Rica. They they go out shopping, they have music, they dance, you know, it's life is is okay, but it's but they're consuming energy and materials. And I don't I don't know the exact percentage, but it's probably about a quarter of the rate as North Americans. Most North Americans, you know, the, the transition from one level of consumption to the other would strike most North Americans as catastrophe, as collapse. And that's the hard part. It's getting everybody on board to say, to understand what's at stake that, you know, yeah, there's collapse and then there's collapse. <laughs> you know, there's, there's giving up some goodies and having to make a painful adjustment. And then there's, you know, war and poverty and destruction and, and mass death. And the latter is, it's, it's entirely possible if we, in fact, it's probable if we don't, if we aren't willing 
to do the first thing and actually consider the, the possibility of reining ourselves in. So yeah, those are the choices we have. I, I really like that in your book, you don't try and paint a picture of this utopian future and say, this is what we're going to achieve if we all pull together and make it happen. You show what is uh, potentially possible, but, but what I like is that you take a little bit more of a, almost like a David Fleming approach in, in surviving the future to talk about what does it look like? And this is, you know, we'll get to your, your uh, the post-carbon Institute here in a minute, but what does it look like mm-hmm. after? What about if we don't intentionally stop if collapse hits us, uh, you know, like a freight train, but how do we react then? What do right. individual communities do? What do individual neighborhoods do? How do people react? And there's still this chance, this possibility that we kind of catch ourselves on the way down and say, mm-hmm. okay, now we need to take the chance to do it right um, instead of letting it be this catastrophe for everyone in the same way. Right. <clears throat> At every stage along the way, there will be better and worse choices that people can make. You know, as things fall apart, you know, maybe people band together and they say, oh, look, there there are different ways, different possibilities that have been opened up by this, different ways of living. And uh, yeah, things are tough, but, you know, let's band together and cooperate and make the most of it. And in fact, you know, that's often how people respond in times of natural disaster or uh, war, they, it actually makes people cooperate more and, and self-sacrifice in order to, to improve everybody's survival prospects. So I think we'll see a lot of that. It's not that, you know, as soon as the bottom starts to fall out, everybody's going to be at everybody else's throat. So it's a lot will depend on our, our willingness then to you know, like here, here, here's an example. Uh, I live in Northern California in Santa Rosa. We had wildfires back in 2017, probably partly caused by climate change. Okay. So a whole neighborhood was, was wiped out by wildfire. And my wife and I had to uh, evacuate. We were without power, without electrical power for, I forget what it was, 10 days over a week anyway. And so we're our neighbors. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time with our neighbors during that week, getting together and sharing what food we had, because a lot of food in our freezers was spoiling. And so we had, you know, we'd share food and talk and, and help each other out with practical things. And uh, in, in, from a social standpoint, actually, it was kind of a highlight. Now you don't want to have to go around burning neighborhoods to the ground <laughs> in order to have, in order to have a, a block party, but <laughs> nevertheless, you know, it's, it, it shows how people respond in, in these, these kinds of, of situations. So I think there will be a lot of that. And, and if more of us are kind of set up for thinking that way and expecting that kind of response, that kind of pro-social response and seeding it in our, in our neighborhoods, I think we'll get along a lot better. And maybe that's a good transition to have you tell us a little bit about the Post-Carbon Institute. We haven't really mentioned that much up to this point in the conversation, but what is the Post-Carbon Institute? What's your role in it? What's the mission there and how are you accomplishing that mission? Well, Post Carbon Institute is a, a very small nonprofit think tank. We've been around since 2003, so it's 
pretty remarkable, actually, that we've been able to survive that long. We have about 10 people on staff. We run a website called resilience.org. And we put out a lot of publications, uh, reports and articles and books and, and so on. If you go to postcarbon.org, which is kind of our institutional website, you can there's a portal there where you can see all of our uh, publications going all the way back to 2003. And, um, you know, I think we've done a lot of good work on uh, everything from fossil fuel depletion, looking at fracking in North America and what's really going on there. How long is that boom going to last? Uh, we have an, an earth scientist who's, who's written extensively on that subject, and it's really detailed, highly informed, technical uh, data that theoretically should be useful to uh, policymakers. And, and we know from you know, who's downloading it that, uh, in fact, it is being looked at by people in the industry and by policymakers and so on. That's just one thing we do. But we, we also look at this whole question of collapse and how societies uh, respond in times of you know, dire necessity and what are the, what are the influences pushing societies in, in one direction or, or another as things start to come apart. And so, yeah, there's, there's kind of a kid in the candy store experience if, you, if you've never been to, if you're interested in these subjects and, and go to Post Carbon Institute, you'll find a lot of, of good stuff there. But as, as I say, we're a small nonprofit think tank, so it's not like we have the ears of the, of the world's mover, movers and shakers and we can you know, pull a lever and get famous people or politicians or, or rich people to you know, do sensible things. <laughs> I like to think we have some influence. And uh, especially, you know, I think a lot of our audience consists of just, you know, smart and really thoughtful and caring people who live all over the place, mostly North America, but also elsewhere around the world, who are working in their communities to build local resilience and to, you know, help the survival prospects of their their own families and neighborhoods and and towns. So that kind of leads me to my next question because I think our audiences are are probably pretty similar. So for our listeners who are listening to this episode, you know, the average person has a limited amount of time and resources that they can put towards any of this. So what would you have the people listening to this podcast do? If there was any one thing that they could do, would it be to, to try and educate others? Would it be to try and prepare their, their own families or their own communities? What would you say? I think it is important to start with yourself and your family, uh, because then when you have more of a sense of, of resilience, personal resilience and family resilience, then you have a base on which to then go out and talk to other people. And if, if you don't have that, that base, then you really sound like a crazy person, <laughs> you know, and, they, and people will, will ask you, well, what are you doing? And if you can't say, well, I've done this and this and this, these are perfectly rational res responses and things that anybody else could also do. If you haven't done those things, then, you know, um, it doesn't look so good. You're not very persuasive. So, um, my wife and I have, have been at this for well over 20 years. You know, we, our solar panels are now antiques. 
<laughs> Time to replace them. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, you know, and you know, we grow some of our own food, and we and we share that with neighbors, and and we we've, we've gotten to, into this thing where our we and our neighbors have this uh, a really good thing going where we grow different things, and and when one one of us has an abundance of something, somebody else has an abundance of something else, and it's it's great. It gives us something to talk about and and uh, feel good about, and and so on. So that's that's a good place to start and informing yourself, developing practical skills. Something that I, I often recommend to young people is taking classes on what's called primitive technology, which is, you know, uh, skill, paleolithic skills. How did hunter gatherers uh, make fire? How did they make string? How did they build shelters? Uh, it, it's not like you know, society is going to fall completely apart tomorrow and you'll have to do all this stuff for yourself. The point is, if you have some basic competency in these things, it changes how you think. Because, right, most of us are so completely dependent on these complex systems of credit cards and and Amazon Prime driving up and, and disgorging uh, all the products you need and, and so on. We're so dependent on, on all of that stuff that the very thought that it might break down is just disabling. It's so fearful that, you know, life would come to an, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't, but if you have some basic competence in how to live in nature and you know how to live with a little bit of physical discomfort from time to time, being too cold or too wet or something like that, and it's not just totally freaking you out, all of this is less, you know, filled with with fear and trepidation, and it's more a matter of okay, what can we do? And it's easier for you to inspire confidence in other people you're talking to, and again, not come across as just a you know a, a, a crazy person who thinks the sky is going to fall tomorrow. And if nothing else, it gives you a a sense of appreciation for what we do have and how we got to where we are. And it's interesting. One of the parts from your book that really impressed me was talking about technologies. Um, this mm -hmm. idea that, yeah, I don't need to, to be able to go make a shovel out of a tree and learn how to, you know, make my own ore and, you know, iron ore and all these things. But this idea that we can power down our technology and still use the engineering prowess and the skills and the materials that we've gained over the last couple of centuries and implement them into a simpler way of doing things. And that, that was really kind of a cool thing. I thought I'm going to look into, you mentioned the low tech magazine, um, a few other resources that I'm really excited to dig into, but overall, again, I just have to say here at the end of the interview, the book was incredible. If speaking to our listeners now, if you haven't read it, you should definitely find it. You can order it. Um, Richard, why don't you tell them where they can find the book power and find you. Oh, um, you know, actually, um, it's, I, I hate to say this, but it's okay to buy it on Amazon just because <laughs> it actually helps. <laughs> um, it, it, it helps our publisher. Uh, right now, there's this, uh, you know, a situation with the ranking book sales on Amazon and, and reviews and so on. Uh, this is actually, it would be actually helpful right now to buy it from Amazon. So ordinarily, I would, I would recommend bookshop.org which is a way to help uh, independent booksellers 
rather than giving all of the the uh, you know business to the, the behemoth. But um, <laughs> it, your choice. If you'd rather go to book, bookshop.org, that's perfectly good. Well, hey, it's an interesting paradox that we all have to live in. Um, you know, Kellen and I, in order to get our voice out there, we use all sorts of fun technologies and things that we talk about how we should power down away from them. So it's just how it goes. Totally understandable. Richard, we are really grateful for your time today. Did you have any other questions, Kellen? Okay. Thank you so much. We hope to speak again in the future. Well, Kellen, Corey, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I wish you all the best. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.